Have you kids not seen that one? You probably haven't, yeah. <clears throat> it's from the uh, 1990, what was it, five, four, cinematic classic, Dumb and Dumber. One of the things that, oh, that many of you know, I, I, uh, I didn't grow up in Baltimore. Um, I uh, moved here right before I started high school. I did go to high school in Baltimore. From what I understand, that makes you legit, but... Um, but I didn't grow up here, so when I first moved here, <clears throat> I noticed a few charming things about the language. One is that every single word has only one syllable. It took me a little while to get used to that. Um, and uh, sometimes you have multiple words that are all one syllable. So like that road that goes out to the northeast, Blair Road. Blair Road. Uh, and, uh, and I encountered uh, in high school this charming word, ignorant. I encountered the word ignorant in the context of a conversation with a girlfriend at the time who was calling it, calling me ignorant. I was both offended and fascinated at the same time. <laughs> it seemed to me if you're going to call somebody ignorant, you probably ought to at least pronounce the word correctly. But I do appreciate that <clears throat> term ignorant. Because ignorant doesn't just mean that you are literally ignorant, unaware, not knowing something. There are many dimensions to being ignorant, some of which are going to be there some of the time, many of which are there all the time. There's the kind of ignorant where you just don't know any better, and so you're operating based on bad knowledge, and you look like a fool, but you know, it would make sense if things were as you thought they were, then there's the kind of ignorant where you're deliberately not knowing what is correct and you're operating according to bad knowledge and you're not even trying. Then there's when you don't know any better and you know you don't know any better and you're still acting ignorant. That's perhaps the most obnoxious kind. I think one of the reasons that movie, Dumb and Dumber, is so much fun and the characters are so charming is because their quality of being ignorant tends not to be particularly wicked or evil. They're just oblivious and really, really stupid. So are we, Paul tells us. How you like that transition? You like that one? Yeah. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27. We are coming to the end of this massive section in chapter 8 on the Holy Spirit. After this, Paul is going to kind of circle in for a landing on the first half of Romans Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with groans that words cannot express. And the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We are ignorant and because we're ignorant, we need help. Let's just back up one more time and look at the flow of what Paul is arguing here in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set me free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. Torah had been hijacked by sin, had been abused 
and the Spirit had somehow to be able to use it for our good as it was originally intended. And what Torah was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man. And as for sin, He condemned it in the flesh, i.e. in the flesh of Jesus, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We, in our flesh, can't fulfill the righteous requirements of Torah. God has told us how we should live to please Him, how we should live to live in harmony with others, how we should live to have a clear conscience, how we should live to be in harmony with the created order that He's given us, and we botch it up all the time. Can I get an amen? Sorry, a little hangover from last week. We botch it up all the time. Jesus is the one person who didn't, right? Jesus is the one person who himself was able to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of Torah. And so what God did was to have Jesus take on all of that humanity, all that fleshiness, to take upon himself all of the penalties that come with our violation of Torah, so that all those righteous requirements of Torah can be met. We can't meet them, but Jesus can. And so if we are in Christ, then we are able to have access to His merits. We have access to His righteousness. And we don't live according to the flesh, Paul says, but according to the Spirit. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, here's what Paul says what we mean by that in verses 5 to 8. The people who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in a way that is in harmony with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life. And peace, the mind of the flesh, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God. It can't. That's the nature of the mind of the flesh. Our flesh seeks its own good, not anybody else's. It follows its own desires, not anybody else's. It marches to the beat of its own drummer, a really bad drummer with lousy rhythm. So those controlled by the flesh are unable to please God. But you, Paul says in verse 9, you are controlled by the flesh. You're controlled by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, this is not a pipe dream. Paul is not saying stuff that is airy nonsense. He's saying, no, the, the Spirit lives in you. If anybody doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But you, you have the Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, and he is... Your body's dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and he is, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, which lives in you. God is going to accomplish this. This is not a bunch of nonsense. This is real, Paul's saying. And, in verses 12 and 13, what Paul is saying, 
not only is this not a pipe dream, this is also not optional. I think I've come to a conclusion that if I had to sum up all of the New Testament in four words, it would be, Jesus is not optional. It's not optional. Paul says, therefore, we have an obligation. We are indebted. We are responsible. We're not responsible to the flesh. We're not obligated to the flesh to live according to it. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, then you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will? Okay, so death, life, right? Not, there's not a lot of room in between. Paul goes on, what's that? Huh? Most, I'm not dead yet, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Zombies were like a, a later innovation. So Paul goes on to say in verses 14 to 17, this is an entirely new way of living that Paul is talking about here. This, those of us who are led by the Spirit of God are, are sons of God. We didn't receive a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear. We received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. We can cry out to God and call him Daddy. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're God's children, then we're heirs. We have an inheritance. We're heirs of God and we're joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And what Paul has in view here is this long-range, cosmic, eternal scope of what God is going to be working out. This entirely way, new way of living that is forever, that begins now. As Dr. Gray said last week, he- heaven is a bonus as far as he's concerned. He, he, he wants to have that, but he doesn't want to have to die to get it. And so, as Paul goes on to say in 18 to 25, now is not like forever. What we are experiencing now, we cannot get around the fact, what we're experiencing now is not what we will be experiencing in full. I consider, Paul says, our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. All of creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for creation was subjected to frustration, not because it wanted to be, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself may be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. God's agenda is one of cosmic reconciliation. He is about restoring all things. What does he say there In Revelation at the very end, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, Behold, I am tinkering with a couple things and making a few improvements. Behold, I am making all things new. This is the plan, and this begins now. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're, we're waiting for what is to come, but we start to get a taste of it now. We're saved in this hope, but hope that's seen is no hope at all. You don't hope for what you already have, obviously. You can't hope for something if you already have it, but if we hope for what we don't have, yeah, we're waiting for it patiently. What Paul is describing is a condition where we know things are not as they ought to be. We, we know this because we read it in the news, that tragically somebody wore a Yankees hat to a ball game yesterday. Even worse, a couple of people beat him up. It was a bad idea to wear a Yankees hat to the Camden Yards. I think we can agree on that. It's a bad idea to be a Yankees fan in the first place. I think we can agree on that. But it's not okay that people beat up some guy going to a ball game. Apparently it was his first date. I guess it can only get better from here with that relationship. We know that things are not as they ought to be. And so we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what one day God is going to work out. We feel this sense of disconnection. We feel this hunger for things to be right that are not right. We feel the pain of injustice and of corruption, of decay, all of it, we feel. And part of this decay, part of this corruption is ourselves, isn't it? And not only the fact that our bodies waste away, but our minds don't work right. I was listening this week to a radio interview with a psychologist who basically says, yeah, you Half the things you think you're sure of, you're positive, are true. They may well not be, but you convince yourself that they are just in the course of living life. We have all kinds of false understandings. We don't even know it. It's one of the reasons that eyewitness testimony is such a problem in, in courtrooms. You have multiple eyewitnesses telling the same story about the same event, except the stories differ, but they're all fully convinced that what they say they saw is what they saw. If you had a video camera, you'd know, but you don't. But everybody's sure that's what they saw. We're weak. Our bodies are weak, our minds are weak, our souls are weak. We are not at peace with our own hearts. We, We know something's not right, but sometimes we don't even know what it is. Sometimes it can be easier to pray for other people because at least you know what to pray for. Sometimes we try to pray for ourselves. We're not even sure what is going on. And God knows this. God is not surprised that we have a hard time putting reality into words or even into coherent thoughts. He knows this. And so he helps us. He is the heart searcher. And he's a hell of a lot better at it than we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Which is why 
It's good news that the Spirit is there to help us in our weakness. When we don't know what we ought to pray for, and some of you may have some translations that say we don't know how to pray. I don't think this is an issue of technique. What Paul's talking about here is we don't know the proper object of our prayers. But thank God the Spirit himself intercedes with groans that words can't express. I've been struck in the last couple weeks. I'm trying to complete my daughter's proper cultural education, so we've been watching the Star Wars movies. And I'm I'm just struck, for one, just by how bad George Lucas's dialogue is. I mean, I, you know, you, it's, I did, yeah, he makes Kevin Smith look like a literary giant. But I, I keep noticing just how different the force is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, you, especially in those first movies, right? Everybody's trust your feelings, except don't trust your feelings because they might lead you to the dark side, but still trust them. You have to get in touch with your feelings. What do your feelings tell you? I, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like, I kind of don't care what your feelings tell you. What, how about objectively what's going on? Whereas then we find out that the force is actually midichlorians in the bloodstream, which is ridiculous. But when we search our own feelings, we get confused, right? When we search our own feelings, sometimes we find things that don't even make sense, that aren't even true. Trying to search our own feelings is going to get us nowhere. But when we let God do that, when we let God search our hearts, and then when we trust Him to align our wills with His, when we let Him work on us so that our hearts start to beat the way His does. That's the work of the Spirit. And that is why, I think, when we pray, we are always praying for God's will to be done, not our own. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, it's, it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing if the opposite of what we pray for ends up happening. In the same way, it's not a good thing if our prayers always come out the way we want to because the counsel and the will of God far exceed ours. I mean, if everything we prayed for came out the way we wanted it to, we would quickly find ourselves really disappointed because we don't know what we want. We may even think we want something we don't know. What is best for us? But God does. I think that's why we, when Jesus taught us to pray, right? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as in heaven. God, may your will be done. What did Jesus pray in Gethsemane? Lord, take this cup from me. If there's any way we can do this whole atoning thing without me having to die a really painful atoning death that would be nice if you could kind of make that happen now. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We pray that in a prayer that we do when we do the prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, that prayer at the end attributed to St. Chrysostom. Lord, you now have... uh, 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 he says, fulfill, fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us. 
granting us in this world knowledge of your truth in the age to come, life everlasting. In, in all of this, we're praying, Lord, here is, what, here is what I think I'm praying for. Here is what I think I want. Here is what I think I need. But at the end of the day, wherever I'm off, I, I'm trusting you to correct that. And I, I, I really sincerely pray that if I want something that I shouldn't be wanting, don't give it to me. Fulfill my desires and petitions as may be best for me. This is why we can pray with freedom. You know, the writer of Hebrews says that we have the parousia, we have the ability to access the throne of grace. Our neighbors might call it chutzpah. We, of all people, can walk right up to the throne of the Lord of the universe and ask him whatever it is that is on our minds. And the kind of chutzpah he's talking about is not what we're asking for. It's not us demanding that God do things the way we want him to do them. It is, chutzpah is the fact that we can even be there. The fact that we even have that kind of direct access. And when we are there, because through the blood of Jesus we are able to be there, it is the Spirit there with us, interceding for us. So let me ask us as we prepare to come to the last tune, I'll ask you to stand with me. Let's all read together that prayer that's in your bulletin. That's uh, from Thomas Merton. He was a Trappist monk. And can somebody give that to me because I left my brochure, my bulletin. Thank you. Will you stand up with me and we'll read this together. My Lord God... I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.